of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle, America will continue the dream. A beautiful morning for a launch in Florida. Ten, the igniters have been lit. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And liftoff at dawn. The dawn of Orion and a new era of American space exploration. Welcome to part two of the NeoZaz.com miniseries podcast, Orion EFT-1. In this episode, you'll hear a little less of me and a lot more from many people involved with Orion and NASA's work on Mars. This episode starts off with a look at the live NASA TV broadcast we were all a part of and then moves on to the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex for a few more speakers and some surprise guests. So, let's start. Here is part two of the NeoZaz.com Orion EFT-1 miniseries. We had boarded the buses again, and at this point, this was pretty cool. Another unexpected thing. Uh, I was on Jason's bus, and Jason was handing out these little plastic frosted boxes. I couldn't tell what they were until he handed mine, and it was a watch from the ULA. It was a gift for commemorating the event, which was awesome. Completely unexpected. Fully appreciated, for sure, but completely unexpected. So that was another really cool event of the day. Well, seeing Orion, hearing Tori Bruno speak, just being that close to it, just as much as I, I probably went on for I don't know what, 10 minutes was that clip, but I, I could just keep going. But on the other hand, sometimes I'm, I'm very speechless speechless of how to put that experience into words. But um, speaking of the photos, I'm going to take a, a little moment outside my notes here and mention that all those photos, all, well, a majority of those photos, I didn't put all the hundreds and hundreds of them, anything that looked duplicate I took out. All the best photos are on our Facebook page in their own albums per by day, day one, day two, day three of the NASA Orion social. So check it out at facebook.com slash news as podcast if you want to see these pictures that go along with this story. Pictures of almost everything I'm talking. In fact, I think everything I'm talking about here has a corresponding picture. Probably should have started this recording, but better late than never in mentioning that. So check that out again. That's facebook.com slash news as podcast. So before I sidetracked on that bit of a my own social media plug, uh, we, were, we had just boarded the bus. So we were on to the next step of our tour. And according to the agenda, it was a behind-the-scenes tour of KSC. Now, in my mind, having read that a few days, actually, I've been studying the agenda. There's, the agenda is not all that long, but I still studied it every day for two weeks because I could not wait to do this. Uh, my mind interpreted that as behind the scenes of the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex. And, and the reason of that for that is because that is 
what I had visited most. When I hear Kennedy Space Center, most of my mental images go right to the visitor center, even though I, I know full well that that is only a small part of the entire complex. And it's a fully functioning space center. That is where things happen. Things are built. Things are assembled. Things are launched. Still, when I hear Kennedy Space Center, I think of the visitor's complex. So I'm thinking we're going to see like the, I don't know, the storerooms, the gift shops. I don't know. I, whatever it was, I was excited to see it. But my ignorant image of this was so wrong because we were, it was a behind the scenes of Kennedy Space Center the functioning space center, not the visitors complex. And the first stop on that was the Armstrong operations and checkout building. Did not imagine or even occur to me that this is what we're going to. And when he said that, I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe how wrong I was. And I can't believe how happy, how wrong I was because that just made this surprise or that made it a surprise is what it did. And I was through the roof, even though I was sad. We left Orion. I was through the roof that I was about to see things that I knew of but I'd never seen before. And anytime I see something new at Kennedy Space Center, I'm 10 years old again watching the shuttle go off. I mean, that's how excited I get. So I was psyched. So we're on our way to the Armstrong, the Neil Armstrong Operation and Checkout Building. Um, quick bit of history here for those that don't know. This complex was built in 1964, and it was used to assemble and process the Gemini and Apollo spacecraft. And it also housed and still houses altitude chambers that test environmental and life support systems. Now, during the shuttle era, it was used to process some of the, the International Space Station components in Space Lab, but now it's back to processing spacecraft like it was originally intended to, namely Orion. Now, a little bit of a disappointment here, but completely understandable and fully respected by our group was that there were no cameras and no phones allowed inside past the lobby. So I have no notes and no recordings, just what I can remember. So the first and most obvious thing is that this is one gigantic clean room. In fact, you are well aware of that walking towards it because you go down a hallway that has, is, the floor is sticky. And I don't mean grungy, not clean sticky. I mean purposely sticky because it is pulling every single particle it can off the bottom of your shoes. and. About three quarters down this hallway is a station where you actually have to stick your shoes in to debride and clean off the sides and top of it as well. And then you finish down the sticky hallway and you open a door and you are blasted by a huge amount of positive pressure. And you probably know what that is, even if you're not familiar with the term. Think about an, any kind of store you visit in the summer where you open a door and there's a strong breeze or actually a, a maybe even a not even a breeze, but a strong gust of wind coming from kind of over top and ahead of you. That is positive pressure. That is keeping the hot air out while the door is open, as well as flies, bugs, and whatnot. Probably more so that, but that is positive pressure. We actually use that a lot in a job I had a few years ago, but that is a completely another podcast and not a story to tell here. So back to the uh, operations and checkout building. We had walked the length of the complex because we kind of walked in at the end of it. So the tour started with pretty much every assembly piece or station for Orion. So we were shown where Orion would be dropped off or brought into the building and mounted and things would start to be assembled. I, I guess I shouldn't say where Orion itself would be, where the piece of Orion would be 
delivered to this building, and we went down to each assembly station. We saw these huge rotation racks that would hold large pieces of it vertically where things could be attached, uh, namely the, the piece that was there because the, uh, the last piece that was processed was the, the uh, crew module. So they, this was set up to have put the heat shield on. In fact, it had put the heat shield on. So we saw the configuration for the heat shield assembly onto the crew module. Uh, we walked down to the finishing station where it would be turned upright again and systems would be checked and tested. That was originally built for Apollo, now adapted for Orion. And as far as the platform and access levels were concerned, that largely stayed the same because the shape is the same. Of course, it's a completely different vessel with a completely different age of technology in it. But as far as the circular platforms went, all they really had to do was separate and expand and then fill in the gaps. So that was kind of cool to see and hear about. So again, I, I don't have any recordings or any notes that I was able to take at the time. So I'm probably missing some things. I do recall, this was kind of neat. Uh, uh, and I kudos to who noticed it because I never noticed it because I guess I never looked straight up. But uh, one of the members of our tour, we split up into four different tours, I think. And um, one, someone in our tour had asked what there was, almost looked like crosshairs or kind of a, black and white check with a crosshair circles dotted all over the ceiling. And they asked what those were about. And it turns out those are the alignment targets that are used for uh, their laser guided alignment equipment when they're assembling everything together. So that was, that was neat. I'm, I'm glad whoever saw that pointed that out. Cause I'm not sure that is something that is commonly pointed out on the tour. So another little fact. So again, uh, apologies that I don't have a full recollection at this point of what this was, but Suffice it to say, it was a, a great tour, very educational, and my retention of the education they bestowed upon us, unfortunately, is not doing this justice. So, if you are, if you're certainly, if you're interested in NASA in the space program, and Orion, if the opportunity comes to tour this, comes up on the special tours in the Kennedy Space Center website, I certainly suggest taking advantage of it because I don't think that happens often, if at all, and if it does. It's something if, if you're like me and you want to learn more as much as you can and most likely won't have the opportunity to work for NASA directly, uh, take advantage of it if the opportunity comes up. From there, the tour continued and we moved on to a renamed facility. It is now called, it used to be named the Assembly and Refurbishment Facility, but now it is called the Booster Fabrication Facility. Much to the chagrin of almost everybody that had done a presentation to us in there, because they had to refer to it by its acronym, BFF. Yes, that I'm guessing many of your reactions are the same reactions that <laughs> was on their face when they told us that. So yes, the BFF, or I am going to take the long route and call it the Booster Fabrication Facility. Now, what this was at one point was where they would strip down and reassemble the booster rockets for the space shuttle. They're doing much of the same work, but on the other hand, different work. It is the booster fabrication facility for the SLS or the space launch system, the new rocket system that will be eventually powering Orion well out of orbit to the moon and likely to Mars as well. What is happening right now in the booster fabrication facility 
is that the booster rockets that were used to launch all the shuttles in the shuttle programs, the ones that remain are still functioning, are being repurposed for the space launch system. In fact, their design is largely the same, with a couple exceptions. For the SLS, there's an extra section because these are going to be far more powerful rockets, and their recovery system is being completely removed because they are no longer going to be recovered. I did not get the details on why. I don't know if it's an economic thing. I don't know if it's an engineering thing. I don't know if, if ditching them costs less than rebuilding, repurposing them and rebuilding new ones. I just know they made it absolutely clear that they will no longer be recovered. They'll just be dumped off into the ocean, much like the fuel tank for the shuttle was. So those are the two obvious differences, I should say. I was going to say major differences. I am sure, though I don't know because this was not about the SLS specifically. I'm sure there's a ton of engineering and mechanics, mechanical differences between the two. And I do hope to learn more about that. Absolutely, for sure. But this, this visit, this event, this was about Orion. We met several speakers inside the booster fabrication facility, but the first speaker we met was not someone I had expected to see at all. We literally had come around a corner after walking past huge pieces of the solid rocket booster and up on the stage was four-time space shuttle astronaut brian duffy he was the pilot of sts-45 and sts-57 he was a commander of sts-72 but i think the reason i recognized him specifically is because he was the commander of a pretty significant and historic flight for the space shuttle and that is sts-92 and what that was was the 100th launching of a space shuttle in the space shuttle fleet. So that is a launch I specifically remember following and watching and knew who Brian Duffy was from that. So to see him up there talking to us, addressing us was, uh, I, I was beside myself. I was not expecting that. And I didn't have my recorder ready because I really didn't know what this tour was. And, and we had just been politely asked to leave all our devices behind in the last tour. I, I guess I kind of forgot that I, I had all this stuff with me. Uh, or what, for whatever reason, I wasn't ready. So I quickly grabbed my recorder and I missed the first part of his introduction, but I did get a really great piece of audio from his uh, speech to us. And I'm going to play that right now. And there's one piece in here that's particularly um, important to me, and it's that to be that funny green colored green skirt right there. That's called an app skirt. And when we were over here looking at the data board that was over here, I noticed this morning that that aft skirt, which is going to fly on the next, the PM1 or the exploration mission number one, it's going to be the, the left skirt for that. That was the left skirt on my space shuttle mission in 2000 on STS, the 100 space shuttle mission, STS-92. So, yeah, so I I got a chance to fly, I was lucky enough to fly the shuttle uh, four different times. Uh, the last time being in 2000 where we used that skirt right there to carry up two pieces of the International Space Station to help, to, to help build the International Space Station. And I was telling someone else another story earlier that uh, I, I think I might be the answer to uh, a, tri a trivia question, my name is, because I think I'm the only person that's ever slept in the space station by themselves. One night, one night I was going to go over and sleep in it and I asked my crew, I said, anybody want to come over? I'm going to go sleep in the station. And they all said, no, you go ahead. 
So I, my daughter's teddy bear and I went over and, and <laughs> But anyhow, I, I, I guess I'll quit telling stories because there's a lot of data here that we want to share with you and, and uh, Bruce is going to share with you, you know, what we're doing, what we do in, the, in this facility, where we are in the program, and what the future outlook looks like. So after Brian Duffy had left the stage, we heard from a few more engineers and managers on the booster fabrication facility project and or the SLS boosters and those projects and whatnot. Really interesting, fascinating stuff. My recordings didn't come out so good in this. This was a very large building, all concrete. The, the floor was super smooth concrete. In fact, almost there was a sheen to it. It was almost reflective. And that was because we were explained everything is moved through that building through air hydraulics. Air, there's like a yellow casing, kind of like a bar, a curved bar grid at the bottom of every one of these pieces, and an air hose, a pressure air pressure hose is hooked up to that, turned on, and things are moved from the air pressure. That's why, that's why the floor is so smooth. So my point is, extremely echoey, very difficult to record. In fact, I'm really surprised the Brian Duffy clip came out as well as it did. So I'm not going to force this bad audio on you. They were quite technical presentations, but still really interesting. But it was about SLS and this, this event, and certainly this podcast is about Orion, so I'm going to move on from there. So after this part of the tour, we were headed back to the OSB2 auditorium for a real quick lunch, and then we were all in attendance for a live broadcast that was being broadcast right then, hence live, on NASA TV. And once I found that out, I, I saw it in the agenda, but didn't quite understand what it meant because the agenda was quite abbreviated. Uh, although I'm sure it said live TV event and somehow it still escaped me what it was. But anyway, my point is it dawned on me what it was and I knew we had NASA TV on our cable system. So I quickly text my wife as well as all my friends that I knew would be interested saying, hey, the live event that I am at is going to be on NASA TV in X amount of minutes, whatever it was. So my wife wrote back that she was recording it. And my friends acknowledge that they got the message, whether or not they watched it, don't know. But anyway, so now we're on to the live broadcast event. Now, this broadcast offered a huge amount of information about Orion and about EFT-1, about Orion in the future, about what we're doing on Mars. It was a great event for a space nut. In fact, if you are a space nut like me and want to learn a lot more about this Orion program. Uh, this entire broadcast is currently on NASA's YouTube channel, and I encourage anyone interested to check it out. It is a two-hour event. It's a full two hours, but it flies by if you are interested in this subject. It was fantastic, and it was it felt even shorter being there live. It was it was great, and uh, trying instead of trying to describe how great it was, uh, it's probably better to just move on here and describe the event and the speakers and let it speak for itself. Because I think once I'm done this, that will do it much more justice than me just sitting here saying over and over how wonderful it was. So the broadcast opened with an introduction from our host, John Yembrick of the NASA social media team. And I have that clip opening the event right here. Good afternoon. I'm John Yembrick with NASA's Office of Communications. Welcome to the NASA Social to preview Orion's first flight test, which is scheduled to launch at 7.05 a.m. Eastern uh, from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. (laughs) 
thank you very much. We have, uh, for those watching at home, we have about 150 people in the room here at Kennedy Space Center. The majority of them are NASA social media followers. Uh, we also have connected to us and tuning in social media followers from eight field centers across the country. The hashtag for today's event is simply Orion. That's also the hashtag uh, for uh, the test flight. And we're gonna be talking about things other than just Orion today at this briefing. We're also gonna talk about, for example, our commercial crew program. Uh, soon, we're gonna be flying US astronauts on American spacecraft to the International Space Station and back. And also, we're gonna be talking about our journey to Mars and how the Orion test flight is a stepping stone to that endeavor. So after the introduction, we, this event started off with two huge heavy hitters, whatever you want to call them, of modern space exploration. If you're a big NASA fan like me, which and everyone else in the room, by no, no doubt, it was an amazing moment to see the veteran shuttle astronauts Bob Cabana and Charlie Bolden take the stage. I had first learned of these two while they were astronauts, but they have moved on to or progressed, I guess you should say, to huge roles in NASA today. Uh, the first, Bob Cabana is the current director of Kennedy Space Center. And Charlie Bolden, he's the administrator of all of NASA. And I have to note this because I got it in a text message. As my wife pointed out, he's also the guy from the shuttle launch experience ride. And that is true. <laughs> Maybe downplaying his importance a little bit, but um, if you've ever been on the space launch experience at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, he is the gentleman that hosts that ride. And uh, that was still cool. My wife at least recognized him there. That that shows how opposites attract. I see Charlie Bolden, and I think of a long history as a pilot, as a NASA administrator, all the things he does and is doing. She sees a guy from a ride. So that's why we've been together for 15 years and no signs of that slowing down. So I, I, I really had to share that story because that, that gave me a chuckle in the middle of all this excitement that somehow she actually managed to distract me in all this. So that's, again, why we're together. So anyway, uh, back to uh, Bob Cavana and Charlie Bolden. I uh, hear they spoke at length and at wonderful length. It was great and took some, uh, some great questions and answers. I'd love to play it all here, but like I said, the event's two hours. So I'm just going to play some real quick highlights from Bob Cabana and Charlie Bolden right now. Hey, are you guys ready to see history made tomorrow? Yeah. So you realize if you've done the math, you know, we, our last flight to the moon was in 1972. It's been 52 years since we've had a human spacecraft, even though there isn't a crew member in it, go as far from planet Earth uh, as Orion's going tomorrow. That's pretty darn neat. This is our stepping stone to the future. This is our first step into deep space exploration, into going to Mars, and I think it's absolutely outstanding. Thanks very much for everybody who's on the net. I understand there are people on from every NASA center around the country, I hope, anyway. Uh, real quick, because I know you all have questions you want to ask. Hopefully, Bob's given you a lot of the technical stuff and all the details, so I'm not going to repeat anything. Uh, but again, I want to thank all of you for coming. Uh, it's a really exciting time for all of us, and I can only imagine how exciting it is for you. Did you already ask them how many people have done this before? No. How many of you have seen a launch of any kind before? Wow, this is pretty... Let me put it this way. Who's not seen a launch of any kind before? All right. Hey, now that's good, okay? Uh, it's going to be pretty neat. So, uh, sort of, that's an understatement. Anyway. <laughs> but, but you, you said this morning what it was going to be. It, it is. It's going to be a BFD. But, but other than that, it's, uh, 
Bob and I had the privilege earlier this morning of actually going out with a folk from ULA and, and Lockheed Martin and kind of standing right beneath the vehicle, and, and it is very, very, very impressive. So again, thank you all for coming. Thanks for what you do. I've seen in, in a few of the social media boards uh, a, a bunch of naysayers saying that this is not such a big deal and all this other stuff. How do you guys go ahead and res respond to somebody like that? I, I said it's a BFD, and uh, exactly. so that's that's my no. But in, in all in all seriousness, it is it is a big deal, and it's it's a huge deal for the nation. Uh, when you stop and think that this will be the first time we've launched a vehicle intended to carry humans beyond low Earth orbit in more than 40 years, people ask what's taken so long. So that is a legitimate question. Yeah. Uh, to to question whether it's a big deal or not, I, I don't think is is fair or legitimate at all. Uh, it is a huge deal because this is a continuation of what the Apollo astronauts started. That first Apollo 11 crew, you know, that went to the moon, the first crew to actually be on the surface, brought us a patch. We have a patch signed, and it's signed by the Apollo 11 crew to be taken, you know, it's for the crew to take to Mars when they go to Mars. And that was, that was back in 1969, they thought of that. Um, you know, the other part of this is, if you look at the Apollo missions, the longest Apollo mission was like 12 days. The Orion capsule, it's bigger, it's designed for a crew of four. It has, with a crew of four, it has a 21-day uh, design life in space. It is a big deal, it's a, it's a much bigger design, and we know a lot more now than we knew back during the Apollo program to really make this our deep space vehicle. We wanted to ask you what the significance of the name Orion is, and um, it seems to pop up in a lot of programs, but it uh, is attached to this program. We wanted to find out a little bit more about why it was named Orion. Thank you. I don't you. have a clue, but I'm going to tell you what I read, okay? And I want to tell you, I, I really don't. I, and I just read this the other day, and I'm counting on, because it came from a media person, so I'm counting on it being true and well-researched. <laughs> that is not tongue, said tongue-in-cheek. Orion came about in the Constellation program, and, and the team at the time felt that what more appropriate to be a part of of a constellation program than to name it for a constellation, Constellation Orion. So that's what I am, I am told that that's how the name came about. You know, subsequently, or most of the times, we go out nowadays and we ask kids to help us name things. I think NASA named it internally, but, but I don't know, for real. Is Sounds good to me. To Bob says it's close and he was still around. But that's the answer I got when I consulted one of my most v valuable assets, which is U.S. media. I'm curious to know, are there any scientific experiments or missions that we're leveraging as part of this test launch. So even though it's a test launch, are there even some short experiments that we're sending up The one for this that flight? I'm most proud of is coming out of something called the, uh, the Exploration Design Challenge. And, uh, and the scientists are high school students from the Hampton Roads, Virginia area who won the Exploration Design Challenge co-sponsored by Lockheed Martin and NASA where we went out and said, look, we, um, radiation is one of the biggest challenges for us. Radiation and, and its potential damage to the crew. Can somebody help us come up with a way to protect the crew during long duration flights to Mars? And, um, and there were like 25,000 responses within a day. I think in the end we had 100,000 or so contestants and, and an expert panel of people picked the five finalists so all five teams should be uh, here at the Cape for the launch in the morning. And the winning team from the Hampton Roads area near Langley uh, Research Center actually have their experiment inside Orion being flown. So that's one science experiment that I know is being done. The other experiments uh, relate to, to um, thermodynamics. We're looking at the heat shield 
and whether or not it is strong enough to withstand the temperatures and pressures of reentry in, in, in about an 85% uh, scenario for coming back from the moon. Um, we're looking at it, its communications and other stuff, looking at the navigation and control on board during the flight. And then the, going back to the parachutes, um, that, that really is aerodynamics. And so we're looking at, we're looking at essentially um, high-speed aerodynamics, the performance of the parachutes as they try to open uh, in a case where we're coming back, you know, starting out at 20,000 miles per hour and then yeah. decelerating. So after Mr. Cabana and Mr. Boland had left the stage, we were introduced to a panel of experts within NASA all about Mars. This, again, uh, knowing what Orion was, knowing I was going for the launch, going into this event, this, this whole social event. Well, first of all, just to backtrack, just a touch, the fact that I'm sitting here for a live broadcast is something I didn't expect at all. But now to hear a panel of experts talk about what we're doing, what we will be doing, and what we hope to do on Mars it was absolutely amazing. I mean, uh, 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 I keep using the same adjectives over and over again. Amazing, wonderful, fantastic, but it really was. I, I hope I'm not listening to those words in this particular podcast, but it, it, they're all applicable. But so anyway, so, so instead of me continuing to go on here, let me let them speak for themselves. Let me, let me tell you who these, this panel of guests were. First was William Gerstemeyer, and he is the Associate Administrator for Human Exploration and Operations at NASA. Next was John Grumsfeld, who is who is the Associate Administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate and a four-time shuttle astronaut himself. Uh, next to him was Mike Gazarek, and he is the Associate Administrator for Space Technology Mission Directorate. Joining them was Ellen Stofan, and she is NASA's Chief Scientist. And last but certainly not least was David Miller, NASA's Chief Technologist. Now, like I said leading into this, the, this panel shared some uh, great fantastic i'm trying to find new adjectives but i just can't i'll say fantastic information with us and uh, with us and everyone that was watching the broadcast and here is just a bit of that presentation thanks john it's uh, great to be here it's really exciting to look out in this audience and see a lot of young faces and and folks that are actually excited about what we're talking about and what we're doing and and, and it's not that I, I, I meet other audiences that aren't there, but I don't typically meet audiences with this demographic. So this is pretty awesome for me to, to get a chance to, to see you and get a chance to interact with you. We'll talk to you a little bit about the journey to Mars and we'll answer a lot of questions. I think the thing that's important, and John will talk about it uh, in a minute, is you know we're really on Mars today and John will describe that. Uh, so we're already there. We're doing the International Space Station where we've got crews on orbit today that are actually preparing and understanding how the human body uh, performs in the microgravity environment of space. We're understanding how our hardware systems operate on board space station for the long durations will be required to go to Mars. So we're really gaining really critical data today that helps us kind of pave that way going forward on space station. I think you can start to see real progress as we're moving on this, this journey to Mars. You, you know, I often put the, the focus really ought to be on journey. This is something that is not easy. It's not gonna be easy for us to go do the scientific information that we're getting from John is absolutely critical. We have a radiation monitor on Mars today, which is helpful for the human aspects. We're going to do a 2020 rover with John and 
Mike Gazarek, and we're going to have an ability to pull oxygen out of the Martian atmosphere to go look at the ability that we could use some of the resources at Mars so we don't have to carry everything with us. So, so to go from where we are today in the Earth-reliant region to the proving ground to Earth-independent is going to be just a huge journey, a huge challenge, and, and that's really what we're, we're all about. So it's, it's not just Mars. It's not just a single mission. It's actually pushing human, human presence into the solar system. Uh, welcome, everyone. This is really exciting. Uh, of course, I grew up always wanting to launch rockets and had the privilege to fly on some, and tomorrow we get to watch a really cool rocket launch. Uh, at NASA, I believe our mission is to innovate, to explore. When we explore, we discover, and when we discover things, it inspires. How many of you were born after 1976? Yeah, quite a few hands going up. No, you were not. <laughs> Well, for all of the, those of you that were born after 1976, you've never known a time when we have not been exploring on the surface of Mars. And right now we have amazing fleet of spacecraft at Mars, both in orbit uh, and on the surface. And I think I have one chart that, uh, that shows this, if we can bring that up, uh, much of which you already know. But what we found out about Mars is really amazing. You know, and especially the Curiosity rover. How many of you have heard of Curiosity? Right, so Curiosity, she has a Twitter account and a Facebook page, and she tweets. Uh, but in fact, it really is human exploration. It's all about engineers driving Curiosity, scientists getting the scientific information, and vicariously exploring Mars through the eyes, through the cameras, through the selfies of Curiosity. And it's really exciting. Our, our goal was to find out, was Mars ever habitable? Could it have had an environment that would sustain life? And that was the big goal. Really challenging, hard to get to the ground, seven minutes of terror, curiosity lands, looks around, and says, holy beep, I, I landed in a dry riverbed. I mean, literally, the geologists, the planetary scientists looked around and said, this looks like a dry riverbed in West Texas. Rounded pebbles, concretions, riverbank, encoded in the rock. The rock tells the story about an ancient Mars that probably had a thick atmosphere, puffy clouds, rain, uh, snow-capped peaks. And so now we're driving along exploring what looks like uh, terrain uh, that supports that hypothesis that Mars was really a happening place. Mars was once habitable. So it's really exciting time, but messages, we're exploring Mars today. Deep space exploration, that's what this is about, right? And really, as Bill mentioned, the journey, the journey begins tomorrow. For the first time, right, putting this vehicle further away from Earth than we've ever had in decades and bringing it back uh, safely. That, that's really excitement, it really leads the way. So let's, and that's really the journey, the journey for deep space exploration, the journey to Mars. So who would like to go to Mars? Anyone, anyone interested? Yeah, in this yeah, me too. Yeah, I know, me too. Me too. Uh, here's the thing, though. We got a couple things we got to do to get there, right? We know there's some challenges to get to Mars. Uh, there's some capabilities that we need to get to Mars. And this is where technology, as you could imagine, really plays a role. Um, so we talk about getting to Mars. There's challenges to get there. We got challenges. We got to land there. And then we got challenges where we got to live there and, you know, and eventually then get, you know, get back. So that's what technology is about. And we're working on those things today. 
just just last month uh, off the coast of Hawaii, uh, maybe, maybe some of you saw it. If you don't, uh, we just launched what the LA Times called NASA's Flying Saucer. Um, we didn't label it that. We had a more you know acronym name, LDSD, but we kind of went with the fl flying saucer, right? It's kind of cool. Um, but we, we took that up at high altitude, uh, conditions like Mars, to go figure out better ways to slow down. Why do we want to slow down? We got to get more mass to the surface of Mars that we can today. We got to get we got to land on more of the planet's surface than we can today. Um, today we land in craters. We need every ounce of that atmosphere to slow down. We want to do better than that. We got more things to go put on Mars that we're going to need to go live there. So we got to figure out how to do that. And we learned a lot about how to slow down on Mars. In fact, we shredded a parachute, if you've seen the video. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, so we're learning. <laughs> Just to be clear, we're learning. That's what we're doing today. We, have, we know now today more about the supersonic inflation dynamics of a parachute than we did three years ago. Three years ago, we stood up the Mission Directorate of Technology, and, and we're developing new capabilities today. You know, NASA is the keeper of the future, and a big part of that future is Mars. Um, and as John talked about, why? Uh, and it's because of this issue that we really do think that the conditions on Mars, we know, we just don't think, we know the conditions on Mars existed for long periods of time where life could have evolved. So we can really get at that fundamental question that has been around in humanity for so long, are we alone? You know, we're addressing it in other cool ways too. The James Webb Space Telescope after 2018, we'll start looking at the atmospheres of extrasolar planets. You know, we wanna go study Europa, Jupiter's moon that has these uh, subcrustal oceans that we think are super interesting. So there's lots of amazing things we wanna go do, but right now we're really focused on Mars. And, and to me, this is incredibly important because I'm a, I'm a geologist. Um, I go out in the field and bang on rocks with my rock hammer. And, and I, I think that piece of human, sending humans to Mars is, is critical to understanding the science in the long run. Finding life on Mars may not be easy. Studying life on Mars is gonna be challenging. And having humans on the surface who can be creative, who can be iterative, who can be innovative in how they're approaching it, who can cover large distances in short amounts of time, um, and who can adapt to new information as they get it. Robotic exploration is great, don't get me wrong, we've done amazing things uh, with opportunity, with curiosity, but we need humans to go to that next step of really understanding Mars um, in a true scientific sense. When I think about the journey to Mars, I really think about it as a technological journey. It's one of many different journeys we're making. And tomorrow is a very big step in that technological journey. But as Mike has mentioned, you know, we've already been working on a, in other avenues as well, on space station and our labs, developing all the other types of technology we need. So this is not the first step in our technological journey to, to Mars. It's an important step, but we've been working on this journey. I'd say we're well on our way. The, um, one of the things I want you to remember and think about, and I try to remind myself every time, that a lot of times we think about technology as performance enhancing. It is, but I think we also need to think about it in terms of affordability and sustainment. This is a very long journey, and we also wanna, wanna in the process, pioneer that path. And that means it's a long journey. So technology is gonna help us to be able to afford it and sustain it. And over time, as technology emerges, we need to think about technology refresh, because on a long journey, that's essential to being able to uh, sustain that journey. Another aspect is technology drives exploration. It's kind of in the background sometimes, but we need to think about not only that technology is essential for sustaining exploration, it, sustained investment in technology is also essential. And we need to keep that in mind. You know, I like to sort of draw an analogy with a water faucet and a sink. 
you know, uh, we can't think about it as something we can turn on today and then turn off, and in a few years hence, we can turn it back on and innovation is just gonna sprout like water from a faucet. It doesn't work that way. We really need to keep that sustained investment so we can keep this journey going. After the panel, the five panelists did their initial presentations, they took quite a few questions from us in the auditorium and from those watching live in all of NASA's field centers across the country. So again, a lot of great questions. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. If, if you're at all interested in this program, you need to check out the, the entire, this entire recording of, the, of this broadcast. I do have some of, the, some of the questions here that I was curious about myself and enjoyed hearing the answers of, and I'll play them. And then the first question was, how, it had to do with how does Orion actually get to Mars? What role does that play? Hi there. Um, first of all, thank you all. It was very, very informative. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Um, so we talk about Orion and it's part of NASA's journey to Mars. Uh, I have to wonder, how would Orion actually get explorers to Mars, onto the surface of Mars? We see a capsule, we see something that's made for space flight. How will it actually land on the surface and then return? Um, is, there, is there something in the works that, that we haven't seen yet? Yeah, the intent of Orion really is not to go to the surface of Mars. It's part of the potential transportation system that will be used as, as combined with the habitation module that will allow us to make the journey. But then there will be a descent kind of vehicle, and then there'll be some kind of ascent vehicle to come off the surface of Mars. You know, we're, we're still kind of trading some things in terms of how we would actually put this together. Uh, we've been working on the asteroid redirect mission, and, and with the science technology mission director, we've been looking at solar electric propulsion. And that turns out that that's a very effective way to move large masses around the solar system. So what we're thinking we may do is we may actually pre-position cargo and maybe even the ascent vehicle and the habitation systems on the surface of Mars before the crew actually goes. So we may actually we call it a split cargo mission. So we would actually fly the cargo first with electric propulsion. It takes maybe two, three years to get there with electric propulsion. Then we pre-position all these assets at Mars. They're there also for repeat journeys to come back again later, but they're there, they can be checked out. And then we bring the crew on chemical propulsion and a fairly short trip could go down to the surface with some kind of lander vehicle and then some kind of ascent vehicle that potentially use the resources on Mars to prepare us to come back. And then we come back to the vicinity of the Earth and then we return from the Earth or from the vicinity of the Earth down to the surface of the Earth. And that's conceptually what we're starting to look at. The next question I have here is a question I would have never thought of. And when I heard, I'll be honest, when I heard this young lady start asking the questions, I didn't quite understand where she was going until she was done. And when she was done, I was like, wow, that is a fantastic question. So. I'll set it up for you. It's, it's a fashion-based question in a sense, but it'll make more sense once the question is asked and answered. And here that is now. Uh, hi, thank you very much. Um, I'm Julia, and I run a fashion tech blog called Technically Sweet. And I think there's a lot of people that are underrepresented that would like to hear about some of the fashion technology or the wearable technology that the astronauts are pioneering with this amazing NASA resources. Are they wearing or, or using anything, any advancements that we might be able to trickle down to all of us for accessibility purposes or for everyone to utilize later on? One thing we have on board Space Station today is we have uh, 
typically do a lot of EKG measurements on our crews, and typically you have to place the electrodes on your body and, and stick them in and hear them. We now have a vest, and you can just simply put the vest on. It automatically puts the electrodes in the proper position for the crew members, and then the data can be telemetered down to the ground for the, the folks to look at. So that's that's one thing we're doing, and we're starting to use those those type of things. Uh, we also use the active watches and I think John probably wore one when he was in space that keeps track of sleep cycles and information along those lines. They all wear dosimeters so they can look at the radiation environment uh, during their missions, those kind of things. So there's lots of little pieces of medical technology that we're starting to, to put on our crew members to, to capture data unintrusively. We also have some uh, some new shoes we have with the uh, accelerometers in the bottom of the shoes so when they run on the treadmill or they do the advanced resistive exercise device you can actually look at the loading that's going into the into your in your femurs into your lower uh, the lower bone structure to see if there's a correlation between bone loss and how much loading you get through your exercise so these are devices that make it transparent to the user that they don't have to consciously even think about it the data just gets collected okay. When you get dressed to go spacewalking, you know, we have the helmet-mounted cameras that we've had for, for a number of years, and I see quite a few head-mounted cameras here. Uh, you know, that, that's a critical component. And, the, you know, the cool thing for us is it allows the folks that are staying inside of the space station to see so we can communicate better. But more importantly, you know, folks on Earth actually can experience a spacewalk that way, too. And I'll just say from a more way cool fashion, if you ask me, of course. Oh my God, I don't know what I know about it, but my wife tells me I don't know much. But uh, David Newman at MIT did some advanced work and under the uh, innovative, yeah, advanced concepts. And she's been nominated as NASA Deputy Administrator. And if you look at some of her, you know, uh, uh, advanced suits, way cool. One, one last plug is uh, there's, a, there's a document called uh, Spinoffs. And I encourage you to download the uh, electronic version because the, the bound version is so thick and heavy. But that's because there's so many things that, that are spinning off out into the uh, out in industry for other applications. <laughs> the question was, what are the spacesuits made out of that are going to Mars? And and that's a really anybody here a material scientist? I think actually we probably haven't invented uh, the material yet, but people are working on it that will form the basis of those spacesuits. That's one of the areas uh, that's you know really ripe for. Uh, discovery is our ability to customize and build brand new materials, which of course is the essence of the fashion industry. And then, then there's the anti-fashion industry. This is, uh, we carry a lot of uh, clothes for the crews to wear, so we're looking at long duration uh, clothing material. So we have stuff with uh, silver fibers in them. We have various other materials that, that don't that don't absorb sweat and don't let bacteria grow. So we're looking at how long you can go without changing your clothes. So so this is kind of the 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 anti fashion world. So so you would have one outfit for your entire Mars duration of three hundred and sixty days. Now no one may ever talk to you and the Martians will run away from you when you get there. But but we're we're starting to experiment with some of that because it is a big volume if you have to carry a lot of clothes and a lot of material with you. So at this point, this the panel's time was up. They had to leave. I'm sure we could have asked questions well into the evening had we been given the opportunity. But we had another speaker come join us. And next up was Phil McAllister, and he is the director of commercial space development. So Phil had given his presentation, is telling us about the objective and the going on going ons with the commercial space program. And then he, the floor was open to questions, and I had one ready. I <laughs> was ready. Hand was about to go up until this first question that was asked, 
answered my question. So I'll play this and I'll elaborate on where my question is going to fit in. So here was a question from the floor to Phil McAllister. Hi, um, I've been following all the innovations that Sierra Nevada and SpaceX have been doing with designing ro- um, their spacecraft. I was wondering if any of those companies comes up with anything really innovative, like a system to return the rocket back to the um, back to the launch area, or being able to land with propulsion rockets on land. Will NASA be adopting any of those activities or any of those innovations if they turn out to be something really groundbreaking? That's another advantage to commercial crew. We, we've had multiple companies competing for these, uh, for our agreements and contracts for commercial crew, and they all have a different way of going about doing it. We're all going up and down to low Earth orbit, but as an engineer, it's really cool to see how they, the different ways that they come up and do these things and really bringing their own ideas and innovations uh, to the task of getting people up and down. So I would like, I, I think that's very uh, likely to happen as these companies get better at it, then that, that can actually spin in to NASA. And we've seen some of that already. It's actually helped with the way we're doing commercial crew with more of a um, trying, to, trying to reduce our requirements set and things like that and using that for a more traditional mission. So that's another way commercial crew is in, in advantaging the agency. If you remember, I said we had about 12,000 requirements for shuttle. For commercial crew, it's about 300. So the companies have significant flexibility to innovate and come up with these interesting propulsion mechanisms. Abort systems is another innovative area that we found our crew, uh, commercial crew partners coming up with and several others. And I would expect to see some of that spin back into NASA. So my question was going to be kind of what are the restrict- restrictions going to be placed on R&D for these independent corporations? And he didn't exactly answer you know, what the restrictions are. But he did imply that they what there were once a a very wide wide range of what independent contractors were to do, and that had been narrowed down from thousands to hundreds. So, kind of answered my question. And for the sake of not asking a maybe a redundant question, or at least leading to a redundant answer, and wasting what little time Mr. McAllister had to give us, I, I didn't ask my question, which was unfortunate. I missed my fifteen seconds of live TV fame, but that's okay. I am not complaining whatsoever. I have nothing to complain about in this event. So next up, following Phil McAllister, this was a pretty exciting guest. It was Rex Walheim, a three-time space shuttle astronaut, including mission specialist for STS-135, which was the very last space shuttle mission. Rex Walheim is still an active astronaut, and he is the astronaut consultant on the Orion Project, and he had some great things to say about this next generation of space flight and the space program. And here is one of those clips, which I did quote the end portion of on Twitter on, and on Facebook immediately after he had said it. Because now as, as amazing and impressive as this first launch as EFT-1, you know, there's a, just it only gets better from here. And just down the road is Orion tail number 002. Now you've probably heard of that as uh, exploration mission one. This is the second mission of Orion, and it's going to go farther than every, any human-rated spacecraft has ever gone on its second flight. So it's, an, it's going to be a big challenge, and uh, it, uh, it's, it takes a while to get there, but it's amazing how we're, what we're doing with each step. Now then comes Orion tail number 003. Now Orion tail number 003 has a special place in my heart because four of my colleagues from the astronaut office are going to be climbing on board that and going on an adventure of a lifetime. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be absolutely amazing. Now, farther down the road, there's also going to be another Orion on top of the launch pad. 
Now, I don't know what the tail number of this Orion is, but they're on board on top of the space launch system will be in the familiar shape of the Orion spacecraft, and on board will be people going to Mars for the very first time. It's an absolutely amazing accomplishment that, uh, that's going to happen. It's going to be one of those you know, points in history. Do you remember where they were when, when, when people went to Mars? And it all traces back to what's happening tomorrow with the launch of EFT-1. This is the first flight of a new vehicle, and the first flight of a vehicle is always a big deal, and that's what is so important about it. Now, um, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a long journey. There's no question there's going to be things that, uh, things that don't always go right, and we're going to learn from them, and we're, gonna, and we're going to uh, recover and, and continue on. But it's going to be a fun one. I'm glad to be part of it. It's an amazing team. Everybody has to do their jobs. Everybody from the, from the engineers to the managers to the folks in Washington, we've all got a job to do, and it's a long, hard job. But we're up to it to, see, to, have, a chance to uh, have a chance to get on that path to send folks to Mars. Now, as you know, when that crew is on the board, that, or that Orion tail number X that's going to Mars, it's going to be an incredibly historic day. But then when, when that happens, amidst all the celebration stuff, I think a few of us will take a look back, all the way back to a December day in Florida when we set off the ex very first Orion tail number 001 on its maiden journey. And that's happening tomorrow, and that's why it's so important to me. You know, I think that the biggest thing you can do to excite the next generation is to show them. You know, there's a lot of people who talk about they, they don't know about what the space program is doing, but when you show them, they understand. You know, when I go to schools and I, and I talk to kids, I show them my pictures and, and they understand that. But the best way is what's going to happen tomorrow when you guys see a rocket launch. I know those, those of you who've seen it one before, they, you know what it's like. You don't just see a rocket launch, you experience it. And tomorrow, just take it all in. I mean, feel the vibrations from that rocket. It's absolutely amazing. And when people see that, it, it, the, the general reaction is pride in their country. When I see a rocket launch from here, it's just I have this incredible sense of pride that I live in a country where we have the capability of rocketing people, just slinging them off the planet all the way into low Earth orbit. And now we're working towards slinging them off into deep space. So if you get them to see the program, to feel it, I think they get excited about it. And the more we do, the more they're going to get excited. So EFT-1's tomorrow. It's going to be really neat to see it on top of a Delta IV Heavy. But like I say, Orion tail number 002, what's unique about that is the ride it's taken to orbit, the space launch system. An incredible mighty rocket. And that thing is going to expire people even before it flies. You look at that VAB out there, and you just imagine the SLS rolling out of there. It is going to take your breath away. And then when it flies, when it flies, America and the rest of the world, they're going to sit up and take notice, and there's going to be no doubt about the vitality of the American space program. Now, following our, this was way too short a time with Rex. I think we were up against the clock at this point. Following that time with Rex was now our next speaker, our, our actual, our final speaker, Mark Geyer, who is the Orion spacecraft manager. So don't really get much more of an expert on Orion than Mark Geyer. So we were very excited to hear from him. In fact, here is a little bit of his opening statement to us at The Social. Tomorrow is a key test for us. It is, uh, as I mentioned before, the main test is for the crew module. We're pushing on the key crew module systems, entry, navigation, and guidance to make sure we're pointed, the computers are working. We're going to see high radiation, so we're going to make sure the computers can work through that. Uh, we'll deploy all the parachutes. Uh, it's important to, that the parachutes all work, so we're going to deploy them in exactly the, the uh, environment we expect to see on a nominal flight. Uh, and then we'll also do these key separation events. Uh, I mentioned in the press conference I had earlier today that the um, it's, uh, unmanned tests are really important because on those tests you want to push the vehicle very hard because this is your chance to learn things that you didn't expect. So 
as I mentioned a couple days ago, I hope, certainly part of me hopes that everything is perfect and we get the big high five at the end, right? And we go have a, we go have a party. But I also, what I really want though, is if there are things that are, we, that are eluding us, and other things that are beyond what our models tell us, but are the truth, then I want to learn those tomorrow so that we make, we can adapt to that and make the best system to take people beyond low earth orbit and, and, and keep people like Rex safe. So that's a key part of tomorrow. Now, after Mr. Geyer's opening speech, much like, in fact, exactly like all the other participants in this live event, he took some questions from the group as well, including this question about the design of Orion and a question a lot of people have said looking at it, its resemblance to Apollo. Uh, my question is, what was the creative inspiration behind the design of Orion and the entire system taking the spacecraft into orbit tomorrow? So uh, the inspiration really is about getting people out into the solar system, right? And exploring beyond low Earth orbit, getting out and, and seeing things differently. Um, many of you, I think most of you, uh, when you were born, we'd already done Apollo probably. So I remember before Apollo, uh, and I remember the first time we saw the Earth from the moon, and, and it changed our whole perception about this planet. So exploration is about things like that, is that we go out, and we go look at these things like these asteroids. We go out, and actually visit the asteroids where they are. We actually go to Mars. We're going to learn things like that and things about life itself on Mars, those kind of things. That's, that's the inspiration for why we want to do this kind of a thing. The Orion design in the Orion mission really came out of looking hard at what, what these missions look like. What are the requirements for the mission? How long do we need to be? How safe does it need to be? How, what's the crew size we need? What's the right shape to get the... The, the lowest mass, safest entry, right? So that's where we get this shape. That's why it looks like Apollo, because the physics haven't changed since the 60s, coming back on those speeds, uh, still work the way they did then. But the insides are totally different. So they're all state-of-the-art computers um, and, and other systems. So it makes it a very much more capable system than we had in the 60s. So with Mr. Geyer's question and answer session, that concluded this live event. And once again, I know I've said it a several times in this segment of the podcast. I fully encourage you to check out the entire broadcast. It is on NASA's YouTube channel. Very easy to find. In fact, so easy, you don't even need to know NASA's YouTube channel URL. Just go to YouTube, type in the two words, Orion and social, and it should be the first thing that pops up. And if it isn't, its full title, posting title is NASA social for Orion's first test flight. In fact, to make it even easier, the link will be in the show notes for this special episode. So definitely check that out. If you have any interest in the current space program, be it Orion, the SLS, what we're doing and we'll be doing on Mars, it will well be well worth your time. It is incredibly informative. So with this live broadcast now over, believe it or not, our day is still far from over. We still have some things we are slated to do and we moved on to the next and the next thing that we did was we were given, first thing we we're doing, we handed out parking passes because we were going to take our cars over to Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. That is actually on the way out of the entire Kennedy Space Center and Port Canaveral Air Force Station. So just made sense to take our own cars rather than the buses. And that's what we did. So we all drove over there individually. We had all convened in front of the big JFK quote, fountain. I'm not sure what its actual name is. I probably could have looked that up, but I did not. Apologies for that. 
And once we got there, we followed signs that said NASA special guest, and we were led to a set of bleachers in the center of the courtyard that were reserve a reserve section for the uh, social participants. So we sat down, and up on the stage came yet another veteran astronaut, the shuttle astronaut Ricky Arnold. And soon after he addressed the crowd, he had brought up another special guest, which I will reveal in this clip here. And I also have a, a, another special guest that I'd like to introduce. How many of you folks uh, would like to uh, be, be astronauts someday? It doesn't matter how old you are. Yeah. Um, well, well, a friend I'd like to introduce would, would also like to be an astronaut someday, and he, is, and he lives on one of my favorite streets, um, Sesame Street. <laughs> We actually have a, a friend here flying on Orion tomorrow. speak last night about it's only been 405 years since Galileo took a telescope and looked at Jupiter and figured out um, that there were four moons orbiting around Jupiter and now we're talking about one of those moons as being a potential target to uh, to take Orion to sometime in the future and uh, 400 years sounds like a long time but I would imagine if Galileo was with us here today he'd be pretty impressed that we got there that fast so we're even at this point in history talking about hey we're gonna go Go carry on the mission. As I'm sure you gathered from that segment, that was, of course, Elmo from Sesame Street. NASA had worked quite closely with Sesame Street leading up to this launch because, realistically, and this might be hard to believe, the astronauts that will be flying to Mars are very likely watching Sesame Street today. I mean, that is a fact, a frightening fact for someone my age, but a fact nonetheless. Following Elmo's appearance, there was the award presentation to the winners of the Exploration Design Challenge. 
This challenge po- was posed to uh, high school students to come up with a solution for traveling through the Van Allen radi- radiation belt. Here is some of the recordings of the winners and a little bit about their winning design now. As was mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, we do have the winners of a challenge that happened here at NASA. The Exploration Design Challenge, addressing some of the radiation shielding uh, that was going on with Orion. And so I'd like to invite on up to the stage uh, the students from uh, Hampton, Virginia. (laughs) Wonderful. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about the radiation shielding that you guys work on? Uh, yeah, there it is. So what our design is called is it's called a tesseract. Um, it's based off the, the actual shape of a tesseract. And um, so what it features is a, is a five-inch plate of aluminum, uh, 3003. It was a it was a nice uh, nice uh, alloy for us to use. But uh, yeah, and so what it what it features is a is a, uh, a way of graded uh, Z shielding. So it starts out with a I mean, it has our aluminum outer layer for a structure component, but it, it works its way down uh, from a, a higher atomic number to a lower atomic number, eventually to its hypercarbon core. Uh, so, the materials we used were uh, aluminum for our outer casing, and then it was zinc, titanium, another thicker aluminum layer, and then uh, a polyethylene inner core. And inside our tesseract, um, at least not this particular model, but inside of our actual tesseract, it's aboard Orion right now. Uh, and it features uh, several decimeters, which are going to measure the uh, amount of radiation the shield experiences throughout the flight of a rocket. Wonderful. So that experiment was actually designed while they were in high school. It will be flying tomorrow morning. Uh, the launch is at 7.05 a.m. if you are not following along with what's going on here. So are you guys excited about that tomorrow morning, watching this go up? Are you nervous? How are you feeling? <laughs> Yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty dang excited. I mean, it's not every day where you get to send something up into space. Yeah. Every day, yeah. That's pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, it was a lot, of, a lot of good teamwork going on, a lot of hard work and uh, dedication. But we did it, and we got this thing on uh, that, just somewhere in that, that way, over there. Um, yeah, but. It's, it's on there, and we, we went to actually go see actual Orion, uh, the rocket today, and we just could not believe that uh, this thing, well not this, but like the other thing, is <laughs> actually on it. It's just, just kind of like a surreal feeling, it's just incredible. The fact that we we actually, like, all of our hard work paid off, and it was really, it feels good. It feels really good. This event at Kennedy Space Center had gone on with three more speakers on different aspects of Orion. Again, some very interesting facts. My recordings didn't come out so good. So again, a good place to kind of move on. But I will, I want to mention who they were and what they talked about. The first gentleman up, his name was Garth Henning, and he talked a lot about the Orion capsule and about long-term space travel, about the challenges and what they're doing to overcome them. Next up was Jason Crusan, and he talked a bit about the habitation system, and a lot about water and air reclamation, which is another one of those things that I guess makes logical sense, and I should know that needs to happen, but then realize that it was something that needs to be figured out now before we can go to Mars, and they're doing it, and another fascinating talk. Last up was Todd May, and this is the gentleman in charge of the space launch system. 
which I hope to go more into in the future and learn more about myself, because this is a very exciting piece of the entire deep space exploration puzzle. This is what is going to make deep space happen, this along with Orion. SLS is going to get us there. Orion is going to carry the people there. So more great information, and I think something that I'm going to be reporting on, and I hope in some more detail somewhere down, uh, somewhere along the future. We will just have to kind of wait and see on that. So after the close of this presentation, we still weren't done. And this is still the first day. This time we were headed over to the Atlantis exhibit. I had seen the Atlantis exhibit several times, but it it doesn't get old. I was like, oh, I'm going to see it again. No reason not to. Plus, I'm with a group of people that are really excited to see it. A lot of those people hadn't seen it yet. And it's always fun to see the reveal of Atlantis. If you have, if you've seen the Atlantis exhibit, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but I'm going to say that the reveal stirs up the emotions and it's fun to watch someone seeing it for the first time. And there's a, a, a large group of people who had not seen it the first time in our group. So I, I wanted to go along to re-experience that. But beside that, I'm glad I got, I went along because without, they didn't tell us this as we come around to Atlantis, there's a gentleman in a blue flight suit being escorted by some of the social team members. And lo and behold, it is astronaut John McBride from the pilot of STS-41-G, which was an Atlantis mission. So the pilot of the space vessel we're about to go see is standing there giving us firsthand information of what it's like to be behind the wheel of this thing. It was, that's another unexpected surprise. And it was, uh, I will say this, it was a small space where we had met him and I was kind of behind the crowd I don't know if I just lingered back or, or being one of the taller members, I let the people not as tall again in front of me. I did try to record it. Uh, the The audio is just unplayable. But I will tell you, he did tell us some great stories, some wonderful stories about how he had gotten into the shuttle program, how he's in the first crew, the first 35 astronauts picked for the shuttle program, how long he waited until he got to pilot Atlantis, his work with Sally Ride, which was, that was great to hear. And just, uh, just some wonderful uh, accounts of, of space exploration and, and, and being on the shuttle from someone who's been there. You couldn't ask for more going in to see Atlantis. You really couldn't. And that just made that visit that much more fun. That does it for this episode of the Neozaz.com Orion EFT-1 miniseries. Part 3 and the very exciting grand finale follows. That is the launch of Orion itself. To hear that coverage of the launch, don't miss Part 3 of this special Neozaz.com Orion EFT-1 miniseries. This has been a special podcast from the Neozaz.com Internet Entertainment Network. For more great podcast series and original entertainment, please visit our website at Neozaz.com. Follow at NASA Social on Twitter for all the NASA Social news, events, and coverage. Get all the latest newsaz.com news episode releases and more at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash newsazpodcast or follow us on Twitter from the account at newsaz. This special podcast episode was produced independently by the newsaz.com Internet Entertainment Network and is not affiliated with nor endorsed by NASA or the NASA Social Media Group. Orion, EFT-1, and all NASA missions, spacecraft, facilities, and equipment names are the intellectual property of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. 
For more news and events from NASA, visit nasa.gov or follow their Facebook page at facebook.com slash nasa. Thanks for listening.